This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Wow, what a night. It was a very, very big test for PC leader Patrick Brown last night. He passed with flying colors. You know, uh, normally by-elections are a bit of a snooze fest, but they're important because, you know, while they don't get much attention, I think they're a real litmus test of where people are at. And, uh, you know, the latest by-election, of course, getting a lot of attention uh, because I think I think it speaks to the anger of Ontarians. You know, it's a referendum on Kathleen Wynne's Liberals. And Scarborough Rouge Valley, you know, it has been in Liberal hands now since day one. So over two decades, folks have voted red. I think they vote red just because they like the color, but they're very loyal. Not this time, not this time. Raymond Cho resoundingly crushing the competition. And for the first time now, the PCs now have a foothold in very, very liberal Toronto. And it happened, despite the fact that Patrick Brown himself got caught up in a, a sex curriculum kind of muck-up in the last few days of the campaign, which you never want to have happen. You don't want distractions. And whether you care about it or not, sex ed curriculum, it's a very, very big deal in a riding like this because it's a lot of new immigrants. But no, the folks have spoken, and they are angry. They voted for change. They voted out Kathleen Wynne. So for those who are kind of waving this off as simply a, you know, a by-election, who do I ever smell the winds, the winds of change. So let's talk to the man of the hour, Patrick Brown himself. He's the PC leader and he joins us. How are you, Patrick? I'm doing great this morning. And Alex, uh, great to be back on your show. Yeah, look, a few days ago we were talking about scandal and, you know, when you get into this kind of trouble in a campaign and you're, you're in the defensive position kind of justifying and explaining things, that's not a position you want to be in. But last night the voters spoke very loudly. This was not close. They want change. You know, knocking on doors, you know, I, the sense I had was that people were fed up, fed up with their hydro bills that uh, are now the most expensive in North America, fed up about the job losses, set up with a government that is mired in scandal, waste, and mismanagement, and they wanted change. And this happened in a riding that was one of the safest liberal seats in the province. You know, they'd won this seat in 2007 by 51 points. Mm -hmm. And even when the PCs won majorities in the 90s, they got creamed in this riding. And so for the liberals to lose a riding they have never lost shows you how intense the appetite is for change. I mean, I have to think, you know, it was the ground game. One of the things that you are becoming known for is your ground game. You are, you have no life, sir. You have no life because you are out on the ground uh, well, meeting you, people. Alex. I'm just saying, I'm like, when does this man have a chance to have, like, downtime? Because you're always out making connections in the community, and I think it's paying off because certainly I think knocking at doors was, was what won this. I did spend the morning today visiting my grandmother, so I I, I, I do set aside time for myself, but I... Uh, we have been working hard. You know, there are no shortcuts in life. And I'm just so fed up with yeah. what this Liberal government's been doing with Ontario that I'm working every single hour to make sure that we can get Ontario back on track. And we need to elect a new government to do that. Okay, so there's still quite a bit of time until the next election. And so that means that, yes, you can have a day off, but not many because you now have to gear up uh, for, I think, what is going to be a very, very intense uh, race because I think Kathleen Wynne, while in Mexico, uh, is watching this from afar. I think what this signals is that she's got a lot of work to do, which means and you also have a lot to work to do. And we, we shouldn't also ignore Andrea Horvath because she also got very interesting and, and, and decent polling um, results last night. So it means there's, there's a very competitive race about to start. Yeah, and you know, the Liberals are um, 
a uh, very good at campaigning, very good at, at spin. You know, they have uh, lots of money from special interest, and um, you know they are a formidable opponent. Uh, but ultimately, they're on the wrong side of what uh, of getting Ontario back on track. They're on the wrong side of the issues, uh, and we're going to do our best to continue to push that conversation on on hydro, on jobs, on transparency, on honesty. You know. We learn in politics. Sometimes it's it's fun. Sometimes it's not. But we've learned this week that mistakes do happen. Uh, you apologize for your mistake, which is almost unheard of in politics, um, because generally speaking, politicians deflect, deflect, deflect. But you know, look, you won. It could have proved very costly. But I think it is a reminder that you know crap happens, and you have to be able to learn from it. So moving forward, um, how do you move forward and avoid mistakes like what happened? Well, one of the encouraging things here is, is you're right, normally in politics, you never apologize, you never uh, admit a mistake, and, and I did the opposite, because, you know, I, I, I intend to do things differently, and when a letter went out to, in my name that I didn't agree with, um, you know, I wanted to correct the record right away, and, you know, I was told, this is going to hurt you in Scarborough, because this letter's popular in Scarborough, and I said, I don't care, because ultimately... I'm not going to win votes on a false promise. I'm not going to win votes on a false pretense. And if it costs us votes, then so be it, because we're going to run and win this by-election on our issues, on the issues that we're campaigning on. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, the sex education candidate got 550 votes that might have otherwise gone to Raymond, but I feel very good that we won this election in convincing manner, um, being very clear on where we stood. You know, uh, we are now back to uh, after this weekend, of course, which I hope you get to at least enjoy, and I think you will. Um, you know, it's back to work. So Queen's Park gets back to work, and there are a lot of issues before us. We've got two new taxes coming to the province of Ontario, and I'm not quite sure if Ontarians who have been kind of away from the news for the last couple of months understand how costly things are about to get, whether it's the food they buy, the gasoline that they put in their car, everything is going to get more expensive on top of big costs like hydro bills, which keep getting increasingly more shocking every time we open them. Um, so, so what is the game plan for you uh, in this next session? Well, the, the game plan is to, to be very clear. We want Ontario to be competitive. We want Ontario to be able to, to attract jobs, attract businesses. And to do that, the cost of doing business can't be prohibitive. And right now, whether it is energy prices, whether it's a new tax on the tax, um, Ontario is pricing themselves out of the market. And we're going to see businesses flee, to whether it's Michigan or Manitoba or Quebec or New York, and we can't afford that. We've already lost 350,000 manufacturing jobs. And so that's what I'm going to talk about in the legislature when we return uh, in September. I want to talk about the affordability of living in Ontario, whether it's simply a family trying to make uh, ends meet or whether it's a business trying to, trying to grow and, and, and stay alive in Kathleen Wynne's Ontario. Well, we will be watching, and of course, uh, we wish you uh, congratulations, and uh, we'll see where it takes us. Patrick, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks a lot, Alex. That is PC leader Patrick Brown joining us uh, after a resounding defeat. And so again, you know, for anyone out there just kind of passing this off as, as a, eh, you know, by-election. By-elections are important, and we have several more in the next uh, little while that have to be called. There are several seats uh, by prominent liberals that have stepped aside. So we're going to continue in this process of picking new people, but you better believe 
that it is game on. I think uh, at, at very least Kathleen Wynne has been served a wake-up call. You know, her approval ratings are down around 16%, so she's got some work to do. Let's bring in Rebecca Thompson, who used to work in the Prime Minister's office doing all things communications, so she knows how these kinds of campaigns work and what goes into them. Good of you to join us. Hello. Hi, how are you, Alex? Good. So watching these numbers come in, uh, you know, it, it started early, but the momentum, you know, got behind uh, Raymond Cho, the PC candidate, and he pulled away and he won. And it was a pretty big win with a big message. Yeah, you know, uh, you spoke of, uh, of the premier's popularity in the polls down at 16%. 16%. That speaks volumes to uh, what... Ontario's think of her generally all across Ontario, and oftentimes by elections are protest votes against the current government, and that's certainly what we saw in this case. You know, you would you talk to Patrick about his ground game. They had 250 or so volunteers out, uh, which far surpassed what the Liberals had. And then you take a look at the NDP uh, result, and it was very close to what the Liberals had. So. In actual fact, you know, this is a wake-up call to Kathleen Wynne. She made a comment uh, after last night's result that this gives her pause for reflection. Well, it certainly should give her pause for reflection, and this could be exactly what she's going to see in the next two years, uh, both in the by-elections and in the legislature. There's not a lot of room for her to grow in her popularity if you look at the pressing issues that are really driving the people of Ontario crazy. And one of them, of course, and we've talked about this at length before, is hydro prices and the fact that people just can't afford their hydro bills anymore. When you get a bill every single uh, or bi-monthly in the mail that shows that your hydro rates have increased, you know, double, triple, quadruple sometimes, and especially in rural Ontario where it's far, far worse, and especially for seniors, uh, this is a major challenge, and yet the Ontario government doesn't seem to be listening to actually reverse this trend. Yeah, and the Premier is in Mexico traveling right now, and, uh, you know, kind of, I'm sure she may have had to have a tequila shot or two to, to absorb this, uh, this loss. Uh, but you have done a lot of work in, in your time on energy issues, so this is a file that you understand particularly well. And you speak of rural Ontario, and you speak of, of people uh, who are getting those hydro bills. And it's always the pocketbook issues that, that, that drive change uh, come election time. But it is going to get worse. I mean, the, the reality is these bills aren't going down anytime soon. And so by 2018, uh, there's going to be an awful lot of stories out in the media about people choosing between power and food, so energy and food. Yeah, you know, and uh, just quickly, um, you know, there was a lot of talk, obviously, this week about the Ontario PCs losing social conservatives. Well, guess what? I bet you for a lot of social conservatives, the big issue that actually affects them when they go to the ballot box is issues related to affordability and being able to, uh, to have a job, being able to afford uh, their energy, their hydro bills for foreseeable future. These are the, you know, whether or not you actually believe in uh, the curriculum, which of course was the hot issue this week, sometimes you actually think, well, what's the bigger issue here? Ontario is one of the worst provinces, not only in Canada, but North America, when it comes to the cost of energy. You know, there's, uh, there's new job numbers that have been released in recent months showing that Ontario has in fact lost jobs. 
And people have paused for reflection about whether this government is up to snuff and whether or not things are going to change. And so uh, no doubt in the next couple of years, we are going to uh, hear more and more stories and we're going to hear the Liberals try to, uh, you know, convince the people of Ontario that they're back on track when it comes to lowering hydro rates. But we know, because we've heard it from the Auditor General, not once, not twice, but almost every single year, we know that issues around energy are going to continue to compound. And uh, there's no doubt in my mind that the Auditor General, Bonnie Lissick, is going to continue to investigate issues around energy, whether it's smart meters, whether it's green energy, which of course is the wind turbines and the solar panels that uh, cost an arm and a leg. The contracts were locked in, in in Ontario in the contracts that are far too expensive. We're paying, you know, 11, 12 cents uh, uh, per kilowatt hour for this energy when hydro, when nuclear power, for example, is far, far less at two cents. We're selling energy to neighboring jurisdictions, yeah. to Quebec, to Michigan, um, and we're losing money on that front. So uh, we're going to continue to hear about this in the next few years. Well, we will, because we don't think of it, uh, you know, yeah, it's affecting people at home, but it's also driving away manufacturing jobs. It is killing things like hospital budgets. You know, you hear so much about costs. Well, you think of a hospital, you know, Joseph Brandt, which is right behind me, you know, they run 24-7 on huge amounts of energy and hospital budgets are being decimated by these crazy hydro pro, uh, costs which means frontline workers are going to end up paying the price being laid off and cutbacks in customer and patient care but you know the social issues which you mentioned Rebecca and it drives me batty as a conservative voter drives me batty when we get off into these fringe social issues when I think all that you have to talk about in this next 18 months, uh, 12, you know, what to, grading up to the next election, is the pocketbook issues, because that's what matters. Yeah, it is absolutely what matters, and Ontario is definitely not on track uh, for making sure that it's the strongest uh, province in the country, which it used to be. Uh, and you, we know for certain that the Ontario Liberals and Premier Kathleen Wynne are going to throw out attacks to the Ontario PCs, much as they have in the past, to try to wedge them into a corner on various social issues. But and, the, and, and they'll go back, so you're talking about the unions spending millions of dollars on ads that will paint Patrick Brown as the Antichrist, and, and it's very effective. Absolutely, and in fact, the Liberals changed the advertising rules so that the Auditor General has, has no ability to veto them if they're partisan. So they're going to be using government money, i.e. taxpayer money, your money, in the next two years to run partisan ads um, without the veto power of the Auditor General to shut them down. So we will see unions uh, who, you, you, not as many unions as we used to though, I will say. Not the doctor's union. <laughs> no, and I, you know, I don't think that we're going to see the support of unions to the, of this government the way that we have in the past. Um, and certainly some rules are changing around advertising in the near future. So that could change too. Uh, however, the Liberals do have the ability to spend money on advertising um, out of government uh, government funds, and that's that's going that's going to be an issue um, for the next two years because of the fact that they have the ability to run partisan advertising, yeah. or at least ads that could be c construed as partisan um, that would 
uh, that would hurt the opposition parties. It's going to be a dogfight. Rebecca, thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Let's talk Wiener, shall we? Anthony Wiener, of course, that is. Uh, he is, of course, one of the most revolting, creepy former congressmen ever, slash sexting addict. And, you know, earlier this week, he was caught for a third time sexting to some random, scantily clad woman, you know, while his wife is out campaigning. She, of course, being one of Hillary Clinton's top aides, one of the most important women in the world, and her husband is at home sexting. So it's been a pretty big story, made bigger only because this creep did all of this while his toddler, his child, slept behind him, beside him, like inches from him. So you got this grown man taking photos of himself in his skivvies, fully aroused, while his toddler is inches away. And he even acknowledged it. He talked about his child climbing into bed. He talked about that his you know, toddler is a chick magnet. I mean, it's gross. I mean, as a mom, I was, that's what caught my attention, was not him in his underwear, was the fact that he had his child right beside him. And then I, I questioned aloud earlier this week, you know, is this illegal? You know, in, in Canada, we do have cyber bullying laws when it comes to this kind of things. It's all covered under this cyber laws dealing with, uh, you know, the sharing of nude photos. So, for instance, you share a naked selfie with your boyfriend or girlfriend, you then break up, and then said girlfriend, boyfriend, share that picture. Well, guess what? You've broken the law. But what happens if you send a naked pic meant for, you know, pornographic use, and there's a kid in it? They aren't naked. But then that picture is, like, spread around the world as is in the case of Anthony Weiner. I mean, this thing is everywhere. You know, we've got laws here, but the United States is different. But it did catch the eye of authorities because now Weiner's being investigated. So did he put his child at risk? I mean, what is the cost? Let's ask. Joanne Grassi is a family lawyer. She joins us now. Joanne, hey, thanks for joining us. What was your first, you know, you know the story, this guy's notorious and infamous for doing this kind of thing, but what was your first reaction? Because this is kind of an area of law that you, you know, would deal in with children. What was your first reaction when you saw that? Um, unfortunate. Like, you know, this unfortunate is, is my first reaction. Like, obviously, he's, this guy's got some issues. Nobody would ever condone that type of behavior, including a child. Um, it's just a very unfortunate choice that he's made, and you know he should he should just stop doing it. Well, he should, but I think there's a learning. You know, the takeaway from this is that if you're going to do this stuff, and I have to think as someone who deals with family law, and you can see how acrimonious this kind of stuff, and I'm sure you've heard your share of stories, but you know, is there is there a law against this of sharing pictures when a child? You know, obviously when he took this picture, the child was sleeping. He probably didn't give it a second thought. Right. And I think, uh, yeah, I, I'm sure he didn't give it a second thought, but that seems to be his problem, that he's not, like, that's that's his issue, his, his poor judgment. Like, if you're going to do this, you know, if he thinks this is 
the way he wants to live his life, so be it. But he has to do it appropriately, right? And he, he can't include other people, especially a minor and a child, and who would want to expose that child. But I think if I'm looking at this realistically, I'm thinking, you know, is this chi- how has this child been mistreated? This child's not conscious of what's gone on. Is it inappropriate? Is it poor judgment? Is it, you know... Has it caused great emotional harm to their family unit? Absolutely. All of those things are correct. But has the child been hurt as a result of it? Probably will be more hurt and embarrassed when he's 18 and he reads all about it. Right, but it can come as a real cost. I mean, I don't think that Anthony Weiner is the only person who has done something like this. In fact, no, I bet there are I, no, lots of... You know what? I, actually, I was thinking about it. I, you know, I because I see so much of this stuff... It, you know, the way the next generation communicates, um, that's very commonplace. So we find it inappropriate. A, a, a certain generation finds it inappropriate, but the, if it's dialogue between two consenting adults, is it inappropriate? I, I understand how it comes to be used subsequently, but when it's currently happening, happening and two people are participating in it. Is it is it cyberbullying? Yeah, I mean it's it it it's not. I mean you would think because he says in his tweet, you know, ooh my, you know, he just look who crawled into bed. Uh, so the intent is not there to put your child at risk. Right. But I think there's a, a learning curve here because I think but a lot he, of he adults have that learning curve tw- twice before already. Yes. Right? Yes. Like he like, but for the fact that he's Anthony Weiner and he's married to who he's married to and he, you know was a, the, the career politician that he was, would we even care? Well, and, and so that raises an interesting point because, you know, he will, of course, pay for this in, in many ways. Horribly. I think. Yeah. yeah. But, but there are other people out there who may do this. And I would think that sh- children get into these pictures. Is this the kind of thing that could change the laws? That that just sends uh, a warning that you gotta be careful. Like you can't have the, your children. The communication yeah. of the photograph. Yeah, like if if you're in a ma- like, let's just say you're married and you send your hubby or your wife a picture or your and your child child's walks in into it. your bedroom when you're in the middle of having a normal married relationship or a sure. normal sexual relationship. Are yeah. they harmed by that? Yeah, I don't know if they're harmed by it. I mean, I'm sure it's no, happened a million times. But if you if you send that via then the internet, like you like, let's say you send your husband a picture, you know, you're scantily clad, your child just happens to be in that picture. I mean, is there a, is you can get in trouble for that? Um, I the only time I find out that people get in trouble for those things is after the fact. In other words, they come to you and say, "I'm divorcing. Here's and a picture." Look what this. SOB did, but when he was doing it, nobody seems to care. So it seems to be quite appropriate, and I'll give you, like, you know, I have all kinds of real-life examples. So, you know, a wife will send a husband pictures if this person is with other people, okay, in compromising situations, and it's all acceptable during the course of the marriage relationship because mm-hmm. of the type of marriage relationship that they have but then after the marriage relationship is over it's how sick is this person and because of, of the level of emotional um, difficulty I don't know, that, that that person is in it it takes on a life all its own so so everything has to even with the media even the way you describe the situation there there 
if a man is in his bedroom with his boxers on texting another adult um, and his four-year-old climbs into bed with him because he got scared about something and just falls right back asleep, has he done something to put this child in harm's way? Mm -hmm. If if you put it in that context, I don't think a lot of people would say that's what he's done is inappropriate. Now, he's, what he's done is inappropriate for a whole bunch of other reasons because he's a, a public figure, people put their trust in him, people are counting on him, and then he's doing this kind of stuff. Like, come on, grow up, okay? Sure. So for that reason, I get it. But for the other reason, I'm, I'm thinking, how many times have little kids climbed into bed with their parents when they're scantily dressed or, or may have been doing something? And, and nobody would ever think to say that that was inappropriate. Now... It was silly when he when he saw the picture and he saw his child in it. That was that was just silly. That's just. Are you kidding me? <laughs> well, that was what my initial reaction was. Sure. Not the fact that he'd been caught again. It's just that the child. But interestingly, we live in a new time, and yeah. so this you know social media is so predominant. And, you know, parents want to post their pictures. They want to put their kids up. I see all sorts of pictures yeah. online of children that I think, oh gosh, you should not be putting that picture up. But they think it's cute. You know, their child in their underwear, or maybe their child's naked running around. And I think, oh boy, don't put that up. Don't put that Isn't up. Isn't that sad though? But you're proud of your child. But the, the, I don't think people realize there are those that would use that for nefarious reasons. You but know, that's, go so isn't that where the problem is? And the media then takes a hold of this and, and does what it does with it. Like I, like, I can remember photographs of my brother in his undies holding barbells all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can remember photographs of us, you know, naked when we were sure. little. Nobody would ever think that that was inappropriate. But if you do it now... And you send it, and, and you're just communicating an innocent photo of a child and how adorable they are. People jump all over it. Why? Because it's the time in which we live where people have made those things issues. Yeah, it's, it's like a gut check. You kind of got to think to yourself, it's, could it's this come back on me or my child? Look, I'm very careful with what, what I post of my little one, and I, and I tell my husband, be careful. You just don't know how it can come back. And, and but, you know, yeah. as parents, we are there to protect them. Implications, yeah. Look. When you're doing matrimonial law, people will make an issue out of everything. At the end of the day, in Canada, or sorry, in Ontario, anyhow, the law is what's best for this child. When that little boy wakes up, does he know that daddy's done anything wrong? He just wants to be with daddy because he's been with daddy every day for the last how many many months. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know. I think we have to be very careful. No, look, look, for a whole bunch of other reasons, the guy was inappropriate and exercised poor judgment and, oh my God, get some help. Okay, I get that. But yeah. this to this little boy, he's just daddy. Yeah. Well, it's going to come at a big old cost. I know. Me, me oh, thinks that Huma's getting cost. the kid. Yeah. Horrible cost. Yeah. Well, we'll keep an eye on that one. Joanne, thanks so much for joining <laughs> okay. us. All right. Take care. Have a good day. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. I want to talk about something that kind of blew up yesterday and kind of created a very interesting conversation. And the question being asked, should we screen immigrants for anti-Canadian values? I mean, ask yourself that. Does it matter if an immigrant has different values than Canadians? You know, does it matter if someone coming in thinks women are equal or do they believe in something like genital mutilation? Is it okay to abort just female babies or honor killings? 
Should those who believe in those things be kept out, screened for it? I mean, I don't even know how you would do that kind of screening process because Canadian values differ from person to person. Donald uh, Trump, I don't know if you'll recall his speech, but uh, in his speech, he says that the United States should be aggressively vetting and take only the best. And I know that would probably come as a shock to some people, but it really shouldn't because in Canada, that's what we do. We take the healthiest of refugees. We take the, you know, and, and also with immigrants, we take the best uh, who have uh, the best opportunity for economic growth, you know, the best economic circumstances. We select those who are the best educated and, and really those who we feel best have a chance of succeeding and assimilating. I mean, you may not like it, that may not seem too PC, but that is the reality when we bring people in. Um, it's what we do, we want the best people brought in. A and it makes sense, because we want people to come here and we want them to do well, we want them to find success. We want people to be able to build a life and enjoy this country, not, not just those who you know take from the system but thrive from it. So, you know, it's interesting about, you know, now do we ask those people what their Canadian values are? Well, CPC leadership, so that's the Conservative uh, leadership candidate, Kelly Leach is asking that question, and boy, whew, did she spark off a firestorm. Maybe that's what she was trying to do. Is it an interesting question? Yes, absolutely. Is it fair? I, I do think it's fair, but you might not. Let's bring in Jamie Ellerton, who, of course, has worked in politics for many, many years. Good to have you, sir. Thanks for me on, Alex. Why would Kelly Leach kind of wade into this territory? You know, conservatives are often uh, blamed and, and lose when they go into this kind of fringe area, when they get into the social issues. Why, why do this? What's the strategy here? Yeah, I think that's what you're seeing is uh, definitely high risk, but there's also potential upside to it. You have to look at the nature of the debate in the Brexit EU campaign and the kind of... Uh, anti-immigration sentiment that was expressed there. You look at what's going on south of the border with Donald Trump uh, and his very bombastic uh, and dangerous language he's using there. Uh, a leadership race is all about visibility. It's about getting your name out there in the media, hearing, get, connecting with Canadians across the country, and finding ways to uh, get covered. And if you go and give a uh, boring, policy-heavy talk at the Rotary Club, uh, you're probably not going to get national media coverage. However, you throw some trial balloons in a survey, you're, uh, you don't have to tie yourself to a specific policy by just asking questions. You kind of generate some buzz and some coverage. And uh, I have no doubt her uh, leadership campaign team is going to be looking at the results of those surveys and finding ways to uh, craft a strategy, what they view to victory, and what is becoming a very, very crowded candidate field. Yeah, but, but is it risky? I mean, aren't, are these not the kind of polarizing issues that will turn people off? I mean, and I say that because... Kelly Leach herself had made headlines during the election. She was part of a, of an announcement to uh, start, I guess, a hotline where people could report, um, you know, things like honor killings or if they felt that they were in some way uh, going to be hurt. Um, and she got a lot of, of flack for that. So does a candidate like Kelly Leach then, you know, risk that sticking to her? I think she absolutely does risk by sticking to her. And there's, of course, if, even if you end up winning the leadership, if you've tarnished not only your own brand, uh, but the brand of the Conservative Party is seen as being anti-immigrant and anti-multiculturalism and anti-diversity. Uh, we already have pretty robust security screening when it comes to our immigrants. Uh, as you talked about in the intro, we actually choose immigrants that we feel are going to be able to integrate economically 
And uh, history has shown if you integrate economically into Canada, you're going to integrate into the rest of mainstream Canadian society. And I think that's uh, what a lot of Canadians are proud of. There are some who probably are feeling that they're left behind. Uh, life here in Toronto is uh, different than other parts of the country where they are still very much feeling an economic downturn that some have felt has lasted since the global recession. Uh, so there's definitely a constituency for this type of message, but it's a high-risk game, as uh, I do think it uh, will not find broad appeal amongst the Canadian public. But in a leadership race where every vote counts in every riding across the country, you've got to uh, generate and connect with people, and uh, they have to be motivated enough to go and buy that $15 membership and then turn out and go to the polls. So it's, uh, it, it's curious that it was put forth in the survey, though, Alex. It wasn't like it was a policy announcement. She said she was doing this. This was basket, put it with a basket of other questions uh, that are getting less attention. But uh, we'll see ultimately where uh, her campaign goes. Yeah, look, it will play well with some sides of the conservative uh, party, but you know, when you when it comes to like the mainstream media, I mean, it's the kind of issue that will be talked about and talked about and can generally generate uh, a bit of a backlash, especially if you're not willing to have an on- honest conversation about it because I don't I, mean, I was pointing out to someone last night on the wonderful world of Twitter. Um, you know, as they talked about Canada being so open-armed and, and, you know, we're the gracious ones who take one and all. And I said, well, no, actually, that's not true. And I pointed out that we, we take the, who we deem is going to be successful and will bring something to this country that they themselves will prosper from, which is, I think, the way you would want to do it. But I don't think most people think that way. I don't think they realize that. No, I think people would actually be surprised at the level of detail and screening that goes into our immigration process. Uh, like you're inadmissible to Canada if you're a security risk. You're inadmissible if you've committed human rights or international violations, if you've been convicted of a crime or something that would be a crime in Canada. Mm-hmm. And you're already getting screened out of the system if you have those past ties and that past history. Uh, so we ha- do a good job of keeping those out. Uh, what uh, if it, Put 10 people in a room and ask them what Canadian values are to be able to put this into some kind of policy and statute and then implement it in a process, so you're probably going to get 10 different answers. And I think that's what is the dangerous game. On the one hand, you'll have people who will read into that what they want to, and they'll get all riled up about it. But on the other hand, it's going to be uh, very quickly start excluding people. And uh, that's the kind of way that you... That's not how you win elections, by excluding and fracturing things up. You've got to be building people together and offering solutions to kind of build towards uh, a common goal. Yeah, interestingly, there was a Globe and Mail, uh, Nick Nanos poll, and, and Nick Nanos is one of the kind of mainstream polling companies. But they did, they did polling on this, and and if you look at the results, seventy four percent of Canadians do want more screening, and seventy six percent said they want the same or fewer immigrants as a whole. So, uh, what what's the missing link here? Everyday people are saying one thing, and yet you've got this whole kind of level of yelling and screaming and, and talk of racism uh, happening in the ether. Yeah, I think the perception becomes reality. Uh, if you look at what's going on south of the border and the broader mainstream media coverage of uh, immigration and cultural issues, I think you're, there's definitely more of a torqued fever pitch to it uh, than there has been in the past 20 years right now. And so there's a perception that more needs to be done. And to, and you're going to see politicians try and capture some of that and ride that wave. But there's also then, it's incumbent upon the government of the day and leaders from all political parties, quite frankly, to uh, be responsible in their approach to leadership uh, and not uh, use these dog whistle kind of dogma to uh, further divide us and go down dangerous paths. 
What would be the game plan or the strategy to kind of putting this out there? It's kind of like, you know, you throw the bomb and you say, well, let's see what we get. Because it really, I think, as you mentioned, is a a mining exercise as to see where people are, what people are maybe looking for in a leader. Uh, The point of this would be to gather the data. This would go to, uh, I would imagine, thousands of people on that email list. And when you look at how people respond to issues, you would then... From there, look as to what uh, policy she's actually going to be announcing that she's going to want to associate herself with in her future leadership campaign. And you're going to look as to, like, the geography, perhaps, mm-hmm. uh, the breakdown. They'll look at where the concentration of respondents came from so that when she's in that part of the country, she'll have a message that very much is tailored to that audience where this resonates more. Uh, what part of the country that is, I don't know. Like, I haven't seen the data. But what this does is it would allow the campaign team to get a sense of feedback from respondents as to what issues they care about, what issues they're for, what issues they're against, as well as their geographic breakdown. So as they look to take the kind of the broader, high-level campaign that very much focuses on the mainstream media and attach that to the ground game, which would be meeting in church basements, legion halls, mosques, community centers, and living rooms across the country uh, as to what message you want to focus on in what region. The politics of politics. Jamie, thank you for the insight. Thanks, Al. That's Jamie Ellerton, uh, who's been involved a long time. He was, of course, uh, worked on Tim Hudak's campaign back in the day. Um, so he, he has a really good grasp on, on why this kind of announcement or, or, you know, thought would be put out there and what the exercise may actually be. Uh, so interesting to see that. But, you know, my next guest is uh, someone who kind of came under fire, um, you know, for saying, well, why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we ask if you adopt our Canadian values? In my head, I said... Well, of course we want people who share our Canadian values. That is, women are equal, that we respect uh, women, you know, that we, we try to be the very best, that we don't, you know, honor, honor killings, but just the basics. You know, like, we don't ask, I think, a lot here in Canada of each other, but we do ask that if you come into this country, at least you should like us. Just like us. But if you actually say that, you'd be amazed at what comes back at you. Faith Goldie joining me now uh, because, you, you know, you you say it kind of like it is and, and uh, you put it out there, right? I, I don't overthink things, Alex. I, I'm at the dinner tables. I'm at the water floors and I just reiterate what I hear. And that is that people are looking at places like Europe and they're saying, yep, that experiment isn't working. Maybe we need to do more. We are a pro-immigration country, and I speak as someone who comes from a family of immigrants. Uh, My family, when they came here, were ready to work hard to adopt Canadian values um, and and ready to make a better life for themselves, come here for a quality of opportunity, and then optimize their their paychecks and and their livelihood. But the problem is now we, we have equated multiculturalism with moral relativism. By saying that all cultures are created equal, we are lying to ourselves and, frankly, setting ourselves up for failure. It is okay to admit that Canadian and North American values are better than a lot of other places in the world. We see women as equal to men. We see uh, people who want to live a homosexual lifestyle as being able to be unionized in the letter of the law over here. Um, we, 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 value, we have so many values across this country that are open and we should be transparent about our openness and that's the same of our, the people who want to come here into this country because frankly it's not their right, it's a privilege to become Canadian and to, to have the same passport as we all do and I don't understand why it is so controversial to ask people for, for the same sorts of things that we demand of our citizens here as it is now. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how they would do it. I'm not sure how you could screen someone and ask them questions without them either lying or just uh, avoiding the question. But, you know, it's interesting because the, the two cases for me that really come to mind were the Axa Parvez case, which I covered, uh, which was an honor killing of a young woman who uh, was killed by her father and her brother because she dared want to wear makeup and she started wearing jeans and, and westernizing. And then, of course, the Shafia sisters who were, you know, submerged in a canal in Kingston, three daughters and their stepmom killed because again uh, the father and the brother and the, the stepmom uh, felt that they were too westernized because they dared wanted to have a boyfriend or wear makeup and so I think okay do we not owe it to these women coming in from maybe countries that view that as acceptable to protect them and say is that what you believe in because we don't accept that here there has been a marriage, an unusual bedfellowship between the left and progressive politics and, frankly, Islam. And the problem is, is that where these two uh, ideologies run into direct conflict are on the issues of women and, frankly, homosexuals. And, and one has to trump over the other. And I am okay with the progressive stance on women. I am okay with the progressive stance on homosexuality. I am not okay with conservative, dogmatic uh, Islam, uh, Islamic stance uh, based on the Quran and the Hadith, okay, uh, what I'm saying here is not some sort of, you know, racial trope here. It's a racist trope, rather. It's just all right there in the holy text. And what we have to say is, it's okay to be Muslim, but guess what? There is a state, there, there is a, a separation between state and mosque here. Sharia courts cannot and should not exist in this country, as they do in so many parts of England, in so many parts of France, that there are Muslim no-go zones. And, and, and for us to pretend that that, that that is not happening in Western Europe right now and that it cannot happen here, again, is opening ourselves up to huge amounts of risk. And the way that you do this, you know, when you look at the 30,000 um, Syrian migrants who are now entered in our, our country. We've got another 6,000 that are coming in. The majority of them were screened in UN refugee centers. Mm -hmm. Working at the rebel.media where I do right now, we, we FOI, we, we submitted a freedom of information request to the government to ask, okay, but are you asking these people what they think about Jews? Are you asking these people what they think about, about women? And we weren't given the answers to the actual questionnaire. We sit down with wannabe immigrants to our country, with, with refugees, and we, we do question them. And what, what I'd hope that we'd ask them about, uh, not just about Canadian values, but hey, is there a possibility that you can become self-sufficient in this country, that you will not be sucking off the government teeth for a time eternity? And yet, Alex, today that is controversial to say. You know, we just heard a Donald Trump's 10-point immigration speech, and you've got the entire lamestream media up in arms, like, oh my gosh, can you believe this racist? How are these questions racist? Well, well or, you and, know, yeah, and let me just interject because uh, Jamie Ellerton and I spoke about that. I mean, I heard that p comment in in Mr. Trump's speech where he said, "We only want the best," and and I yeah. thought, okay, yeah. And I know a lot of people were outraged by it, but we do this in here in Canada, and I've mentioned that we do that here in Canada. So if you're outraged, you're outraged with ongoing policies that we already have in place. Look, there has been a host of research done um, on the types of immigrants that come into countries and their uh, trickle-down effect on a nation's economy, on its uh, education rates, on, on all the, the various markers that tell you about the gross domestic state of a nation. Um, when you bring in immigrants who become welfare dependent, who are um, content to be in ghettoized circumstances where they do not learn our language, where they do not learn our way of life, it is bad for that country. 
Um, the, 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 the stance on immigration that we are taking today is, is unprecedented. And again, the warning from Europe tells us that it ought not to be carried on, that we should go back to the way things were and say we got standards in these places. We've got rules in this place and basically get get in line, shape up or sorry, you're going to be shipped out. Right. But maybe it's just the source. I mean, because had this come from somebody else, had it come from a Margaret Atwood or someone else, I don't think we'd be having this conversation. I think it's the source of where these comments come from. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's from Kelly Leach, right? Which is a little bit rich because it's the same woman who went on the CBC and cried about the barbaric cultural practices hotline, which, by the way, was a fantastic idea, something that I wish Canada would adopt. Do you know that in this country, we do not have one single study to tell us if and how much of female genital mutilation is happening in this country. In the UK, they've done it, and the numbers were shocking. I'd like to know, when a doctor is greeted with a young woman who has had her feminine areas sewed up and essentially mutilated because, you know, at the age of nine, she was shipped back to whatever banana republic her parents came from. Um, they don't know how to handle it because we do not have uh, the proper studies. We don't have the proper training for doctors to deal with this sort of stuff. We are pretending that these problems do not exist in our country. And what that means is that these, these problems only become more egregious and are not dealt with properly. Uh, ignoring the problem doesn't make it go away. In fact, it makes it get worse. Yeah, well, it's interesting because uh, the debate is now being had. Faith, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.